Hi, I'm Kevin Givanoni. I'm a neurologist at uh, Barts and London School of Medicine and Dentistry. And in this MSLV podcast, I'm going to give you some background why I think shared decision-making uh, is not really shared decision-making uh, and why we should probably change the way we refer to it rather than keep spinning the myth that we are giving people with multiple sclerosis a, a real option in their treatment. Um, the f- this is a, a case study from an email I received from a recently diagnosed patient with multiple sclerosis who was offered uh, diroximal fumarate, or Vimerity is the trade name, of a tumimab uh, uh, or acrolizumab. So she was given an option between three therapies uh, in two classes. And she's been doing a lot of reading um, of MSLV. Um, and although she settled on having ocrelizumab uh, as a treatment, uh, she actually would like to be treated with an immune reconstitution therapy. Uh, and she wants to know why she wasn't offered alumtuzumab or cladribine. And she does mention in her email that uh, her consultant that she sees prides herself on promoting shared decision-making. And so this particular individual found it quite uh Surprising that she wasn't given more options, particularly these uh, these two immune reconstitution therapies. And I suspect the reason is because this particular patient doesn't have uh, highly active or rapidly evolving severe MS. She probably just has active MS, and in the UK, well, in the NHS, uh, to to be eligible for alumtuzumab or cladribine as a first line option, you have to have rapidly evolving severe MS. In other words two disabling clinical attacks in a 12-month period with uh, MRI evidence of activity either enhancing lesions, in other words, they are actively inflamed, or two scans, serial scans showing an increase in lesion load in new lesions. So that's the definition of rapidly evolving severe MS, and I suspect this individual just has active MS. But what's quite clear, um, this patient wasn't given other options either. Um, you know, if she did have ex, uh, active uh, MS, there are quite a few other disease-modified therapy options that she could have been offered. There were the injectables, interferon beta, and there are three prep. Well, there's more than three preparations now. There are four or more preparations of interferon beta, acetate, uh, terfluoramide. She could have been given dimethylfumarate, the other fumarate, or even penicillin. So she wasn't given all the options. She was given a, a pricey down or a smaller number of options. Um, for yourself. I just want to say that I personally don't believe in this false division of MS into active, highly active, and rapidly evolving severe. This is a legacy based on the licensing of treatments. Uh, and it actually came about by coincidence, actually, when Nadaluzumab was up uh, for licensing by the European Medicine Agency. They didn't really want it to be open to all MS patients because there was this risk of PML, so they wanted to pigeonhole it for people with more severe disease. And so they came up with these uh, post-hoc, after, post-hoc meaning after the, the trial was finished, analysis of the data um, of rapidly evolving severe for uh, people who are naive to treatments or highly active, in other words, people failing existing disease-modifying therapy. And since then, those two definitions um, of uh, activity have just been maintained. And there's very little evidence to support them. And uh, the reason why I think it's a problem, because if somebody presents with their clinical isolated syndrome and then they fulfill the criteria for having MS and they've had one attack, 
um, you want to treat those people. You don't want to make them wait. And in reality, if you want them to get onto other options outside of anti-CD20 therapies, which are the only high effic highly efficacious therapy, first line for single attack MS, you'd have to wait for these people to have a subsequent disabling attack in a 12-month period if they wanted, to, to, for example, to go on to nadalizumab, alimtuzumab, or cladribine. So the whole um, ethics around waiting for people to have more attacks to be eligible for more effective therapies in terms of flipping the pyramid is ridiculous. And, and this is why I think we should get rid of these uh, false classification systems and just license therapies for MS and let the clinicians and neurologists and the people with the disease, the patients, make a decision. Um, and this is what happens in Australia, um, uh, where the Australian authorities don't treat clinicians and patients like fools. They treat them as grown-up adults uh, with the ability to make uh, informed decisions, and they let them get on with it. So if I had MS, I would definitely want to live in Australia, where I would have access to more effective therapies, um, uh, and leave it up to the neurologist looking after me to inform me what they think is the best treatment for me. <clears throat> so I've actually um, moved away from this term shared decision-making. I think it's really a fudge. It very rarely happens. And if it does happen, it's actually, I don't think, always in the best interests of the patient with the disease. And I now prefer what this neurologist did with this individual is guided, the term guided decision-making. In other words, you guide patients to two or three options um, and let them make a choice between them if you think there's no big difference or there are tributes of the two options um, that, that uh, you think may, may be suitable for an individual. So I, I use this term, uh, guided decision-making. You know, giving people an option of 10 or more DMTs and sending them away with information to make a decision is abrogating your responsibility as a healthcare professional. You know, um, um, I, I personally gave up on shared decision-making, you know, uh, eight, or ten, eight, nine, maybe even 10 years ago. What I would recommend this patient does, though, is she goes to the MS Selfie microsite, uh, which we have, you know, we have the curated microsite where I've got a list of questions that I would recommend she understands <clears throat> before making a decision. And I'd just like to all thank you, those people who are paying a monthly or annual subscription. You can see the uh, MSLP microsite is alive and up and running. Um, it's actually a, a project in development. It's it'll never be finished because information and knowledge accumulates. But, uh, you know, over time, it's going to get better and better. And I thank you for your continued support. I've also got some summary stuff. Um, you know, our group have put together a clinic speak disease modifying decision aid. That's for licensed treatments. Uh, I put the link on the newsletter. And I've also, in the process of um, finalizing the so-called MSL for info cards, you can go online and see those now as a slideshow, or you can download a PDF to look at. This will give you summary information around each disease-modifying therapy. Uh, so it will help you choose. The idea of the info cards is not to give you a whole pack of cards um, to go away with, but to take a pack and maybe choose two or three of the cards to give those to you and say, these are the recommendations give you summary information and then uh, on the active site you can click onto the SMPC or other information uh, or, or use a QR code to get more information on the individual DMTs. So the idea is to try and not overwhelm individuals in clinic but just give them the uh, 
headline information about a specific DMT and let them go away and research it more, come back with questions, and then make a guided decision-making together about which is the best treatment option. So uh, as part of this podcast and the newsletter, I've actually given you some further reflection on shared decision-making. And several things have influenced my decision-making around discarding shared decision-making and adopting guided decision-making. Um, um, first of all, the elephant in the room is the complexity of the multiple sclerosis disease modifying therapy landscape. I've just mentioned to you that we've got 15 plus drugs and there's going to be more in the future. How can you expect somebody to take responsibility who doesn't have the expertise to synthesize information around all those and, and come up with the decisions? So they have to be guided. And it's, it's quite clear that uh, expecting individuals, I'm not saying everybody can't be an expert. There are some people who can make decisions themselves. But in general, people want to be guided. Secondly, um, I read this perspective that was written in New England Journal of Medicine by one of the editors, uh, Lisa Rosenbaum, uh, back in 2015. And it was so touching and it was so, so to the point um, that I would urge you all read it because it's really telling you that uh, um, why, uh, you know, paternalistic medicine is alive and kicking and why we rely on experts to make decisions for us. And what's interesting, um, she describes a little case study of one of the previous editors-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine. And um, this particular editor, Franz Ingelfinger, had written a essay called Arrogance, which was pu published after he uh, had died. Um, and he describes his experience as a patient with a carcinoma of the gastroesophageal junction. And this was an area that he specialized in in his career. So this was a professor of medicine, editor of the one of the of the world's best clinical journal, who was a specialist in the management of the the cancer that he developed. And uh, he could hear and the article states, as he considered the trade-offs of chemotherapy and radiation and receiving contradictory expert opinions, uh, he and his family members became increasingly confused and emotionally distraught. Finally, one of his physician friends told him, what you need is a doctor, uh, Inglefinger notes. He was telling me to forget the information and to seek instead a person who would, in a paternalistic manner, assume responsibility for my care. And when that excellent advice was followed, uh, him and his family sensed an immediate and immense relief. In other words, he didn't want to make a decision about what treatment was going to be done on him for his own cancer. He wanted somebody else to make the decision. And this happens to me regularly. And I'll just give you an, a case study of a woman, and I won't forget her, but I'll still look after her. But uh, she was a, a, an NHS nurse, and her husband was an NHS physician. So they were both healthcare professionals. Uh, and she had rapidly evolving severe MS. And I had recommended flipping the pyramid, and I had recommended a choice at that stage. This was back in 2015, I think it was, or 2016, to either start natalizumab or alimtuzumab. And I counseled her and her husband, and I provided with the literature. She was JC virus negative, so PML wasn't a worry. Um, and she just had a lot of problems coming to decision. She was spending, uh, she had you know, two months later, after numerous emails, conversations, she still hadn't come to a decision. 
And after re- reading the Rosenbaum perspective, I simply picked up the telephone. I called her and I said to her, let me make the decision for me. And she agreed. She was, uh, given the circumstances that she'd wanted to start a family in the next few years, and also that her mother had died of secondary progressive MS in her early 50s, I recommended she go the immune reconstitution therapy route and, and be treated with alimtuzumab. And it was quite clear, the sense of relief in her voice was palpable to me over the telephone. And she couldn't stop thanking me for relieving her of the burden of deciding on her own treatment. She just found it too problematic. So like that professor of medicine, Inglefinger, in that commentary, she had the same problem. She really couldn't make the decision for herself. And what's interesting, once we'd made the decision to treat her with alimtuzumab, she couldn't wait to get treated, you know. And the long story is that, uh, you know, seven or eight years later, I have recently saw her in clinic. She's in long-term remission. She hasn't got any secondary autoimmunity as a complication, which is good news. And she is uh, on MRI scan, no evident disease activity. So she is no, she, so she is free of disease activity. And even better, she's successfully had two uncomplicated pregnancies and is a very happy and proud uh, mother. And so this is one of our success stories in, in a way. We've taken a woman with rapidly evolving severe MS with a family history of MS, uh, who's completely, which was completely anxious about her prognosis, who came to a, uh, a I assume, a guided decision-making, and she made me, and I made the decision for her, and she's done extremely well. And then the other reflection is I actually had a severe accident in late 2020. I was out running on a Saturday morning and was hit by a speeding motorcyclist and, and sustained quite a few injuries. I'd had a head injury. I was probably unconscious for about 10 to 15 minutes. I fractured my cervical spine uh, and thank goodness the burst compression fracture of the C7 vertebra didn't go into my spinal cord. It went uh, sideways into, into the nerves supplying my left arm. So although I was in incredible pain, I wasn't you know, paraplegic or quadriplegic, um, uh, and also had a, a fractured pelvis. In my pelvis was completely unstable, and I had a whole lot of soft tissue injuries. Anyway, I was ended up in uh, King's College Hospital, and I needed urgent surgery. Uh, it's two types. I had to have a the orthopedic surgeon had to fix my pelvis because it was unstable. Um, he gave me three options. He said we could do nothing, but we'll. I couldn't wait there and it'll take me months for my pelvis to heal on its own. Or I could have emergency surgery that day and they'd go in blind because uh, they didn't have the theater staff and the necessary access to technology to do it under screening. Or I could have this new process uh, as a, um, an urgent case in the week where I could have um, uh, you know, 3D mapping of my pelvis and screening to put the pins in, which to him was safer. So he gave me those three options, and I said to him, "You know, what would you do?" And he said, "I'd wait for the uh, the screening, and we could and three D mapping of your pelvis, and we could uh, put the pins in where we would uh, avoid damaging blood vessels or nerves." Uh, and similarly, the neurosurgeon discussed the options of my cervical uh, decompression and fixation. I, I could go anteriorly or posteriorly. And he was giving me the pros and cons, and and um, eventually I just said to him, what would you recommend? And he said a posterior approach because I could um, get in and see what I'm doing much quicker uh, and there's no damage, no chance of damaging my the nerve to my uh, larynx. I wouldn't have a problem with voice. But, but in both situations, I think these two surgeons were just going through the notions of giving me the impression I had an option 
But in reality, they were telling me what they wanted to do, and I felt like they shouldn't have been told me that. They should have said, there are other options, but this is what I recommend. Anyway, for those of you interested in my experiences uh, from my own decision-making around trauma, uh, I've put in a link to a blog post I did back in November 2020 uh, when I was uh, recovering at home. So the question um, I would say, have we forgotten our role as neurologists, as healthcare professionals? And I think a lot of things have influenced me, but I have clearly changed my position and I do not talk about shared decision-making anymore. I do not think it's a, 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 a reality. It's not practical and it's just not being responsible as a clinician. You know, I think we, we, we should allow people to make informed decisions, but we should guide them in the right direction. Um, um, and sometimes I don't even give people an option. I, you know, it's a subtlety as a, a person who's been practicing neurology for 30 plus years. You know, certain patients don't want to be told they can have one or two or three drugs, um, two or three or four drugs. They want to be told which therapy to. And it's up to me as a, uh, as a clinician to understand that. Um, and I'll c- conclude then with the final paragraph of the Lisa Rosenbaum perspective in the New England Journal of Medicine when she uh, concludes saying the doctors she admires most are characterized not by how much they know but by a sophisticated intuition about how best to share it. Sometimes they tell their patients what to do, sometimes they give them a choice, sometimes when discussing treatment options they cover all seven tenets of informed consent Sometimes instead, seeing the terror of uncertainty in a patient's face, they make their best recommendations and say, I don't know how things are going to turn out, but I promise I'll be there with you the whole way. And this kind of sums up why medicine, neurology, and the practice of MS neurology is still an art. It's not a science. Uh, we don't think there's an algorithm that can make decisions. It just It's just too complicated. And this is why... Uh, clinical experience and the intuition about individual patients, uh, you know, makes uh, a difference. <laughs> um, anyway, let me know what your thoughts are about the issues raised in this podcast and newsletter. And I'd like to know if you are on a, if you're on a DMT, were you, were you offered a choice or not? Uh, did you want your neurologist to choose your DMT for you? Were you forced to make your own decision around your DMTs? And I, and do you agree with this term guided decision-making re- replacing the so-called shared decision-making? Because I don't think shared decision-making ever happens, to be honest with you. Um, you know, we can make a DMT that we don't want somebody to take. look so unpleasant that we'll never take it. It's what I would call manipulating the way you present information. And that's also not fair. Uh, anyway, I've actually put the link to the uh, uh, Lisa Rosenbaum perspective, and I think it's open for anybody to read. Um, but if you if you want to just go on to the MS Selfie site, I've actually added some additional excerpts um, that I think are important and illustrate some of the issues I've discussed. So um, leave a comment. Let's have a d- discussion and a debate around this issue. And uh, just to nudge you, if you feel that these newsletters are valuable to you and you learn from them, please uh, feel and you can afford it, please uh, subscribe. Um, The more income I get from the subscriptions, the better we can make the microsite, the curated site that um, I'm hoping 
will uh, transform uh, the self-management of MS. So thank you very much.